Would you open your Bibles, if you have your Bibles, to Isaiah 41? Uh, Martin has preached through uh, the first 20 verses of this, and so we'll be picking up in verse 21. Um, you'll remember that this is still in the second half of Isaiah. We've just um, come through the turn in Isaiah, in Isaiah 40, where we find a word of comfort. And that continues uh, through Isaiah 41. One thing of note, and I'll, I'll mention this later as well, uh, this is actually ramping up to Isaiah 42, which is the first servant song of the four servant si songs we find in Isaiah. And these are the clearest passages that are prophesying Jesus in the Old Testament. And what we're going to look at today is kind of the on-ramp to that. The, the title I've chosen for today is uh, Real Magic, and uh, some of you may be uncomfortable with that term. I remember when I was uh, a kid, I used to love Harry Potter and uh, fantasy books and stuff, and I loved bookstores too, and I was, I think it was a, I'm pretty sure it was a Borders bookstore, and I was nine or ten, and I was looking around the fantasy section in the bookstore, and right next to the fantasy section, they had another section of books about why you shouldn't let your kids read the books in the fantasy section, and I was by myself. We were at a mall, and my, my parents were doing other things, and I thought, I need to make sure that my parents don't come in here and see this, because I want to read, read my Harry Potter. So we have this kind of, as Christians, and I think that there's a good impulse here, we have a negative reaction to magic. But I do want to offer you a, a technical theological definition of magic. Um, Thomas Aquinas calls it just a separation of cause and effect. Um, what that means is if I do something, something unexpected happens. So the magicians that we have do card tricks and stuff. The expected thing, if I shuffle a card back into a deck, is that I won't be able to find it again. But the magic is that I can hide it and find it. And so you see that there's, there's this idea that the effect doesn't follow the cause. And that's all that magic is. And so uh, there is such thing as real magic. Uh, we've already talked about Colossians 1, about how um, the universe holds together under Christ. So like it's a little unintuitive that when God speaks, the world is created. That's magic. That's a miracle. When Jesus spits on the ground and rubs mud in a man's eyes, he can see. If I do that, it's not going to happen. And so there's a separation of cause and effect. So I just want you to hold that in your mind as we come to the passage. Because um, that'll be important to kind of frame where we're going. But let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer before we read. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would illuminate it by your spirit. So that we can hear and see um, your wisdom, your call to us. We can see your work in this world. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 21. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome. Or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. 
do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning? That we might know, and beforehand that we might say he is right. There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. I imagine most of you have probably heard the phrase, God is dead. It comes from German thinker and philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, who was writing in the late 1800s. And in fact, we have a whole Christian movie series called God is Not Dead, refuting this claim that God is dead. But often, uh, I think we kind of misconstrue what Nietzsche was saying. We tend to think that Nietzsche was being triumphalistic, that he counted it as a win. But I think it's important that we understand um, a little bit more detail where he's coming from. Because while I disagree with his um, claim that God is dead, I think that he finds a kernel of truth here. So here's the full quote. God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off of us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the grace, greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? So you see, Nietzsche, he's not excited about this. Now, of course, he's an atheist. He's an enemy of the church. He hates Christianity. But he does recognize that what we've gained by enlightenment, by rationalism, we've also lost something really important, a sense of wonder, a sense that the world um, has a bigger story that we're all a part of. And we've elevated ourselves to the place of gods. And so this isn't really a, a kind of atheism that he's espousing. Instead, it's a kind of paganism. He says, must we ourselves not become gods? And he's right. We've killed God and we've elevated ourselves to the place of God. But that leaves us empty. Everybody desires a kind of magic. Everybody desires wonder. Everybody desires mystery, something bigger to be a part of something like that. I'll, to play my hand a little bit, I'm not a big fan of the Marvel movies. 
I know that's kind of, that's, that's not a safe thing to say, but, um, and I think they're fine. If you, if you enjoy them, watch them, that's great. But I think for a lot of people, it represents something immersive, that I can get caught up in something bigger, that I can get caught up in something beautiful and a grand story. And we have this impulse to, to look to things like that, to, to watch 30 movies, which again, if you enjoy that, that's fine. But I think often we're looking for something more. We're looking for something magical. And what I, I wanna present to you today is that only our God is truly magical. We can't look anywhere else. We have to look to the one true God who can really do real magic. And so I, I hope today I can dispel you of some of the notions that you have of a perfectly naturalistic world or a world where God is not working and show you that God is actually working in this world. God is actually doing things in your life and God is making a difference. So first, we have to get rid of our false notions. Only our God is truly magical. So don't settle for illusions. Don't settle for illusions. Look at verse 21. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Now the word case there, if you want like a little project to do in your free time, um, I would encourage you to look up uh, that Hebrew word and just find it in the Old Testament. That's a really important word throughout the whole Old Testament because the word there is, is reeve, but it's, it's always talking about a lawsuit. And usually it's a lawsuit that God is bringing against other gods, against Israel. Maybe the best example of this is in Exodus 17, when there's a lawsuit about whether God will protect the people in the desert. And so here we have a courtroom. God is calling the Gentile gods to court. And God is the judge and the jury and the prosecutor and the executioner. He serves all of those roles and he's asking these Gentile gods to defend themselves. First, he asks for prophecy. He says, let them uh, tell us the former things that we may consider them. Declare us the things that, that are to come. He's asking them, tell me something that I don't know. Give me some kind of prophecy because uh, that's a way you can prove that you're a true, you're God, your prophets are true prophets. But they can't. And so he says, do good or do harm. We may be dismayed and terrified. So he doesn't even ask him to do something good. He says, just do anything. If you're true gods, you have power. You can do something. Then he says, behold. And there's, uh, that's indicating a pause. The idea is that God has waited. He's waited to hear an answer and they don't give him anything. He says, behold, you are nothing. And your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. So all gods have prophets. And in this case, what's standing before God? They're dead gods and they have blind prophets. They're dead gods with blind prophets. Now you may be thinking, um, I'm a modern civilized person. I don't worship any idols. I don't worship any pagan gods. But I want to give you just a few examples. Something to think about. Maybe you do have dead gods. Maybe you do have blind prophets. 
First, maybe you have a false notion of God. And maybe that false notion of God has false teachers. People you listen to, people you hear, who talk about a God that is really kind of nice. Maybe he's way out there and, you know, if you need something, you put a quarter in the vending machine and he gives you a blessing gumball. Maybe he's just in your heart and he works in your heart, but he's not really involved in the world. That's, the world just kind of goes on and God's not involved in that. And we're going to talk about what a real notion of God is, but maybe that's a dead God for you, a false notion of the true God. Maybe your dead God is science. Now, I love science. I had three majors in college. I, I didn't, I wasn't a triple major, but I did three majors in college. And I managed to get the S, the E, and the M of STEM. So I love science. But so often we elevate science to this higher level. And we use terms like trust the science, which the question is, what is the science? And nobody really knows. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying don't trust the scientific method, you know, do science, study things. But when we rely on that, when we put our hope in that, we're putting our hope in something that can do nothing for us. Scientists can make good guesses, but they can't see into the future. They're blind prophets. And science is a dead god. Another one, politics. And the, the blind prophets of politics are politicians. What do politicians do when they um, come to campaign? They say, if you elect me, all of these great things will happen. If you elect me, we'll have the best economy, we'll have the safest streets. But the, answer, the, the truth is, they don't really know that. They're trying to get you to vote for them. And uh, politics can't save you. No amount of political maneuvering can make the economy uh, run perfectly forever. But we, we sell ourselves an illusion. We sell ourselves the illusion that um, when my guy is in charge, everything is going fine. When the, other guys, when the other team's guy is in charge, everything is falling apart. And the reality is that usually most things are basically the same for you. And so, but we elevate politics to this high level to say, if only we could elect the right people, if only we could do the, uh, implement the right policies, everything would all come together. But at the end of the day, all of these things, our false notion of God, our false um, idolization of science and politics, all of these things are just illusions of grandeur. We trick ourselves. And we let the blind prophets trick us. None of these things can offer you a vision into the future. None of these things um, can offer you hope, real, lasting hope. None of these things can do anything. Their works are nothing. Their works are less than nothing. Their metal images are an empty wind. They can't do anything for you. Only our God is truly magical. So don't settle for illusions. Only our God is truly magical. So trust in him. Look at verse 25. I stirred up one from the north he has come from the rising of the sun and he shall call upon my name he shall trample on rulers as on mortar as the potter treads clay who declared it from the beginning that we might know and beforehand that we might say he is right there was none who declared it none who proclaimed none who heard your words 
I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. And I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. Now we've talked about previously um, in this sermon series how prophecy normally has multiple fulfillments. And so this is uh, a classic example of that. Most commentaries, most commentators will say that the near fulfillment of this and the clear historical example of somebody fulfilling this prophecy is Cyrus. Cyrus was the king of Persia. And Persia um, really did come in and trample on all the rulers. And Cyrus, the king of Persia, really did release the Israelites from bondage in Babylon. And this, this herald that God gives to Jerusalem is Isaiah. And Isaiah is prophesying about the coming conqueror, Cyrus. And he calls upon the name of the Lord, Cyrus does, in the sense that he fulfills God's will. There's, a, there's this idea that God has actually called Cyrus out to conquer the world. Uh, I talked about this with uh, the college students the other night. But do you ever bless your food before you eat? You know, you, you come to the table and you, you thank God for, for the meal that's in front of you. But have you ever really thought about how that meal got there? Did it just appear out of nowhere? No. You either got it at a restaurant or somebody in a, somebody in a kitchen somewhere, whether that's your house or somewhere else, made it, put it together. Before that, somebody went to the grocery store and picked up all the ingredients. Before that, somebody shelved it at the grocery store and a truck driver took it to the grocery store from a warehouse somewhere and a farmer took the, um, took the produce to the warehouse who loaded it on the truck. And, and you see, there's this whole chain of things all the way, going all the way back to the ground. And some farmer on the other side of the country took a little seed and dropped it on the dirt. And weeks later, you're sitting at your table thanking God for that. See, God works through ordinary means. God works through the world that we live in. Cyrus was not a Christian. Cyrus did not believe and hope in the true God of Israel. But God used him to carry out his will. And so we need to trust in God's providence, that he's working in this world. And when you thank him for your food, for example, recognize that you're thanking him for an entire world that he made. You're not just thanking him for what's in front of you. You're thanking him for a whole system, a whole economic system. You're thanking him for people that worked to put a plate in front of you. But there's more here. Not only does Cyrus fulfill this prophecy, there's someone else. You can probably guess who that is. I mentioned earlier that this is the run-up to Isaiah 42. This is the first servant song. It's a prophecy of Jesus. And there's a sense in which um, Cyrus fulfills this prophecy. But in another, truer sense, Jesus does. And Cyrus is what we call a type of Jesus. See, remember that Cyrus, it says that the, this one that God is sending would call upon the name of the Lord, call upon my name. 
Now, Cyrus didn't actually do that. He did it by carrying out God's will. But there is one who would come, who would carry out, who would call upon uh, the name of the Lord. And there is a better herald, a new herald that comes before Jesus, John the Baptist, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, proclaiming the day of the Lord. And this king, this conquering king, came to earth and he calls his people out. He conquers the Gentile nations with the gospel. He conquers death with his own death and resurrection. And he frees his people from captivity, not to Babylon, but from captivity to slavery, from captivity to sin and slavery to death. So trusting God's promises. Jesus is the fulfillment of this. And he frees us and he conquers and he takes victory over the Gentile nations, the Gentile gods, our dead gods and our blind prophets. He conquers with the true God, Jesus Christ, and true prophets. I was reading an article earlier this week um, from a Christian philosopher. He's widely known for his work on the resurrection. And his, he's written books defending the historicity of the resurrection. And so he's well known for that. But earlier this week, he, he wrote an article, it's called The Historical Adam, about um, the creation narratives and really Genesis 1 through 11. Now keep in mind, this, this man is a Christian, and um, he has defended, and done a very good job of defending, the miraculous resurrection of Jesus. And this is what he says about the creation narratives. Aspects of the creation narratives would be fantastic. What he means by that is unbelievable, not real, even to the Pentateuchal author himself, if taken literally. The idea of an arboretum containing trees bearing fruit that, if eaten, would confer immortality or yield sudden knowledge of good and evil must have seemed fantastic to the author. We are not dealing, after all, with miraculous fruit, as if God would, on the occasion of eating, supernaturally bestow upon the eater immortality or knowledge of good and evil against his divine will. Now, I, I don't want to get into creation debates and how all that happened. But I think this is indicative of a sad, disenchanted worldview that a lot of Christians have bought into. You can hear um, the way that he looks at this. Of course not. Of course uh, this story is uh, just a, a myth of course, this story, it's, it's incredible. It's not real. It teaches us something, but it's not that important. It's, the, the idea is the point, not whether it's true. And he's basing that idea, basing that claim on the, the idea that miracles can't happen. And it's this idea that we take the smallest kernel of truth we can get in Christianity. It's, it's true that the resurrection is the doctrine whereby Christianity stands or falls. Without the resurrection, you have nothing. But the, the answer is not to take the smallest miracle 
the smallest little bit of miracle of magic that you can uh, get, the smallest little bit that's necessary, and hold on to that. If you believe that God became a man, that he came to earth as a little baby, that he lived a perfect life, died, and rose from the dead, you're called to have a magical worldview. You believe in the most incredible, unbelievable thing that's ever been told. You believe in the most magical, miraculous story that's ever been told. And so many of us fail to take that into our everyday lives. We don't trust the providence of God. We don't trust the promises of God. Except for one little tiny piece that that we need to punch our ticket to heaven. Next week, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And um, I want you to be thinking about this as you come in next week. Because historically, it's been understood that the tree of life makes a reappearance on Golgotha. Adam sinned on a tree. Jesus obeyed on a tree. And the body and blood of Jesus become the fruit of the tree of life. Jesus said if we eat his flesh and drink his blood, we'll have eternal life. We believe that when we come here before the Lord's Supper, spiritually, by faith, we receive the benefits of Jesus' death, we receive the benefits of his resurrection, and we're united to him in communion. This is a magical, miraculous, beautiful, wonderful thing. We're going to come in here, and we're still using these disposable cups. We're going to get a little disposable cup with like a teaspoon of grape juice and a little wafer. And God promises that if we receive that by faith, if we trust in Jesus, if we trust in his death, that God will save us and give us new life and unite us to him. And that's a glorious, beautiful thing. Only our God is truly magical. Only he speaks and creates. Only he speaks and redeems. Only he can take the infinite majesty of God and place it in a man. Don't settle for illusions. Trust in him. Trust in his providence that he's working through everyday life, through the little things that you do. Trust in his promises and the gospel that he's called you to himself. And trust in his magic, his power, and his majesty, and his glory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.